0: Hello, listeners, and welcome to IFTF's Future Now. Here's our newest episode spotlighting our community of researchers, scientists, and thinkers who are helping to imagine and shape our collective future. I'm Jean Hagen, IFTF's executive producer, and in this episode, Marina Gorbis, IFTF ED, talks with Nick Romeo, a policy journalist for The New Yorker, professor, and author of the new book, The Alternative, How to Build a Just Economy. This book challenges readers to rethink the fundamentals of our economic system and consider better alternatives. I learned about concepts like true pricing and better cooperative business models that keep profits with workers and communities. And Nick presents really compelling stories of folks who are working to build economies that are more equal, just, and livable. It's an inspiring conversation that I hope you enjoy.
1: Welcome, Nick Romeo, to our Future Now podcast. First, I just want to say congratulations on publishing the book. I know it's a big deal and writing a book is is quite an endeavor. And I think this one's been in the making for a bit because I've been reading your New Yorker articles and I think that's how we got in touch originally. I remember the first I think one of the first articles I read was about utility for gig workers, the new municipal utility, and was really interested in that. And so I think we've been in touch then, and I've been following your work through The New Yorker. It's called the Alternative. And let's just start with, talk about the book. What is the book about?
0: Thank you so much. Yeah, I really appreciate the invitation to be here today, and I'm very excited about the book. Yeah, like you mentioned, the title is The Alternative, and the subtitle is How to Build a Just Economy. So it's an allusion to Margaret Thatcher. I don't know how many people will still have her famous phrase in their minds, but she's very closely associated with the phrase, there is no alternative, which became a defining slogan for neoliberalism, and the sense of inevitability that the status quo has might ambition in the book was to disrupt that and to show a kind of carefully curated portfolio of other options, everything from how to organize labor markets, to how to run businesses, to even political interventions, like how to run cities in a more democratic way. So the the goal of the book was to showcase alternatives and and to do so in a reported and researched way, right? So as opposed to a kind of utopian, pundit-based prognostication, just saying the world could be this way. I assert that it might be someday. Instead, I actually tried to find places where alternatives are already being trialed and experimented Mm -hmm. with and implemented. So that's that's the kind of basic ambition of the book. And it's several years in the making. Like you said, it, it grew out of reporting for The New Yorker. Most of the chapters in the book initially appeared in some form in in the magazine.
1: When you talk about the alternatives, let's talk about alternative to what? Is it the alternative to neoliberalism? Is it the alternative to capitalism? Is it the alternative to the dictum of economics and return to investment as a main driver of the way we organize our society or our business? When you think about alternative, alternative to what?
0: Yeah, at the broadest level, alternative to the status quo. There have been so many excellent books in the last 10 or 20 years that diagnose what's wrong with the world broadly. And a little more specifically with economics, I mean, you can think about books that sort of show increasing concentration of corporate power, books that show increasing wealth concentration. I'm thinking of people like Jane Mayer, Thomas Piketty. There's a lot of attention dedicated to figuring out what's wrong with the current status quo. And the alternative I'm trying to outline is in contrast to how things currently work. To be more specific, I have in mind everything from, from labor markets to corporate structure and organization, how businesses are run, how democratically they're run, how they allocate profits. Alternatives to the current way that it investment capital and finance function, alternatives also to sort of our our political status quo. So the hope would be that whatever you're most disturbed by in the world, there's at least some glimmer of an alternative present in the book. You could really just kind of take a laundry list of issues, environmental, economic, things that are, I think, pretty broadly concerning to people of a range of political beliefs. If you have pretty even minimal commitments to causes or moderate limits on wealth inequality, then there are reasons to be concerned and there are reasons to want some kind of alternative.
1: I think that's what I really appreciate about the book and the connection with some of the work that we're doing at Institute for the Future is that we find it's very hard for people to think about even not radical, but alternatives. Because it feels like the way we live right now is kind of preordained. Like this is the only way to do things. There is no alternative. This is like, it's given from above. And that's why in our work, we so frequently go back to history. Like things didn't always work like that. We didn't always have wage labor where people were selling their time for money. It wasn't a marketable commodity there. And similarly, with futures work, you have to imagine alternatives. And so what you describe as alternatives, we think of as signals. What is already happening around us today that are showing really different alternative pathways and alternative approaches? And I think that's why I initially was taken with your work and showing that, yes, there are these alternatives. And some of the work we've been doing in equitable enterprises, similarly focusing on particularly alternatives to business structures. Like, for example, co-ops have been around for a long, long time, right? We forgot, now it's we're reinventing them. But one thing I wanted to ask yeah. you, I love the opening to the book, where you start with a story from Tolstoy about Pohol. And uh, I have affinity with Tolstoy and Russian literature. Uh, but maybe tell the story briefly and, and why that particular story. I'm happy
0: to tell the story. I also really agree with you about the power of the concept of the inevitable. And Tolstoy actually is very insightful on this point. In a essay, he writes that, Basically, whenever people behave badly, they always present their actions as the results of unalterable laws. So they're just obeying laws. And I I think the presentation of economics as akin to the natural science, especially akin to physics, is a sort of prime example of how bad behavior gets justified. You are enabled by this analogy to say, look, I'm just obeying a natural law. So I, I think that's so important to just point out different periods in history and also different places in the present where there are counterexamples to these laws. And if economics were actually akin to physics, we don't go around finding a lot of counterexamples to fundamental physical laws of the universe. So something is clearly going on there that's getting lost in that metaphor. And I think Tolstoy is right that it's a really convenient way to enable the status quo. I, I start the book with a story from Tolstoy. It's it's not particularly well known, but I think it's it's really powerful. It's a little fable, and it's called "How Much Land Does a Man Need." It's has the structure of a folk tale where the main character makes a bargain with the devil, and he is interested in acquiring more wealth and more land, and he visits a distant tribe in Russia who make him a deal that's too good to refuse. They say, you can have as much land as you can walk in a single day. So he starts at sunrise. He sets out with his shovel. He marks the borders of the land. And like a good kind of utility maximizing profit, maximizing homo economicus, he's doing his best to squeeze every last square inch of land in to this plot before the sets, So he's, he's looking back at the sun, he's getting more land. As you might imagine, he, he gets a little too ambitious. He overreaches. He's not able ultimately to come back in time. So the end of the story is this very dramatic scene where he's rushing back because the arrangement is he has to get back to the place he started from by the end of the day. So it's as much land as he can walk in one day. And if he doesn't make it back in a day, he forfeits the land. So he's running back and the sun is setting and he's basically fighting against his own greed and he's fighting for his life. And he, he rushes back and just as the sun sinks below the horizon, he reaches the spot that he initially set out from only to die. So he's worked himself to death. He collapses. And the kind of grim irony of the story is that he's buried in six feet of land. That's all the land he needs is his own, his own grave. So this reminder of death, I think is, is still something people talk about, right? A lot of people in the book who I profile said some variation of, you can't take it with you. I don't need all this money. I'd rather do profit sharing with employees. I'd rather have some percentage of my business support a local nonprofit that does environmental work. So there are these kind of anti pahoms Tolstoy's main character. I love that story because
1: it's such an apt description, this thing about working yourself to death. In some ways, it applies to all of us, right? Like, it's so deeply ingrained that we have to, well, some people don't have to work much. (laughs) Wells is passed on, but that's a different story. But that idea of working yourself to death and the kind of irrational choices we may make but also the instinct to acquire more and more. And that's so deeply, I think, ingrained. We've been thinking a lot about what is enough? What is the concept of enoughness for for us, for organizations, for everybody else? And it kind of goes against the grain of uh, economic theory, of uh, a lot of the ways our institutions are structured. So I thought it was a really great story to start with. So let's talk about some of the models, some of the alternatives. And I think some of them I've read in the New Yorker or other places, but some were relatively new. Like, let's start with True Price idea. What is that?
0: Sure. Yeah. True Price is an organization in the Netherlands. It's a foundation that basically attempts to quantify the externalities of a broad range of goods and then to include the cost of those externalities back into the price mechanism itself. So typically when we buy something at the store, we're not thinking about every conceivable externality that was produced in the production or transportation of that good. Think about buying an apple at the store. Maybe if it's a fair trade apple, there's some protection for the workers who grew it. Maybe if it's organic, there's some protection for Soil quality and types of chemical fertilizers that are used. But even for those sort of maximally protected goods where the externalities are in some way included in the price, it, it might cost more to buy fair trade or organic. Even there, there, there are lots of things that are not included. There might be carbon transport costs if your apple's coming from halfway around the world. If we switch from Apple to something like chocolate or coffee, there could be underage workers who have lost years of education because they have helped to produce the thing that you are buying. So true price takes this very, very basic fact that economic goods have externalities, and then they, they operationalize that by including the externalities back into prices so that consumers have more information but also so that producers are motivated to decrease the scale of those externalities. So for example, there's a grocery store in Amsterdam where true prices are already listed for a lot of the goods. So you could see side by side, the regular price of a good and the true price. If the true price is a lot higher, that means that there are significant environmental and social externalities. So you can imagine people saying, okay, I'm not going to buy something that has a true price that is $10 more, that's going to motivate the producer or the grower or the transporter to decrease the true price. On the other hand, if someone says, I'm fine paying the true price, that too can be really useful because it generates funds that can then be used to remediate some of those impacts, right? So you could actually Help to restore an ecosystem that had been damaged. There are lots of challenges to implementing this at scale, but it's also a really powerful demonstration of one of the main ideas in the book, which is just that moral political concerns are central to economics. And what you choose to externalize versus what gets internalized is not a purely economic choice.
1: And even the whole idea that it's externalities can be questioned. Why are they externalities and not internalities?
0: Absolutely. It's not really a question of whether or not these external costs get paid for. It's a question of who pays for them. So rather than saying we're going to let future generations pay for them, maybe in the case of climate issues, or we're going to let distant people far away who are growing or producing very cheap goods, we're just gonna let them bear the costs of malnutrition, sub-living wages. Rather than those people and those future people paying the costs of cheap goods, what if we actually knew what things cost? It's a really sort of simple idea, but then it's also incredibly complex, as you can imagine, to get representative studies to try to pin down exactly how do you quantify some of these costs. Mm And who decides on
1: which externalities
0: to be quantifying? That's
1: one of the issues. And I think you talk about it in the book.
0: I do, yeah. There's an important point here, which is that they're, they're not actually trying to do every conceivable externality. It would be impossible if you actually said, okay, I'm buying something that was made using a factory and the factory was constructed using cement and the cement was constructed using... Earth and the earth came from clear-cutting. You could go crazy with every last conceivable externality. That doesn't actually invalidate the project, though. All it does is motivate a clear scope and focus where you, you say, what are the most salient and relevant externalities? And there's some judgment involved, but it's also sort of something on which reasonable people tend to agree. If if you have underage labor in your supply chains, it's a little bit hard for anyone to say that this is acceptable. It's its in violation of international law. It's in violation of most national laws. Even the more pure free market folks would not support underage labor. So there's some things that are pretty clear. There are other things that are going to be a little bit more of a gray area. So carbon emissions is a good example. Most economists agree that the price of emitting a ton of CO2 in the atmosphere is higher than zero, but there's still a huge range, right? Is it, is it $50 a ton or is it $500 a ton? What's interesting in the case of carbon is that estimates have been going up pretty much every year. The more research we do and the more information we have about the scale of future impacts, the higher those estimates get. So true pricing, I, I think it's good to understand that there's a range of reasonable options within which people can disagree but then there's also a range beyond which it's it's really not plausible to act like there are just no impacts to these these ways of producing food goods and pretty much everyone agrees that there is a cost the question then is who should pay it and how should we try to change production systems so that in the future those costs go down
1: It's interesting because in our um, equitable enterprise research, we interviewed a lot of people who are running these more equitable forms of business. And what we came away with is this notion that there's no such thing as pure equitable enterprise because there's always something that you don't take into account or something that is not maybe that equitable along the supply chain or somewhere. And people make choices and decisions. But I think what's important is that people are thinking of beyond economics? They're thinking beyond sort of economic returns. They're really thinking about social impacts and environmental impacts and making these sort of decisions. So that's why I think the the notion of true pricing kind of brings it to the fore that it's not just a pure economic decision or economic the way we think about it. Think of them as externalities, but they're they're an important part of what you're doing and how you should be thinking about it. where do people, where do you find these true price? Are there stores or where, are there places where they're more common and who goes to, who uses them?
0: So there are a few different applications of true pricing currently. True price is one foundation in in Amsterdam, but there's a a bigger family of accounting methods that are are often referred to as true cost accounting measures. And these basically try to do the same thing that true price does. One way that it shows up is in consumer facing applications where you actually tell consumers, here's the true price. So there've been studies, trials in in Germany where people go to a grocery store and they see prices side by side. That was an awareness raising campaign. In Amsterdam, there actually are stores where you can pay the true price. And you get the assurance from the owner of the organic grocery store that the extra money that is raised through the true price premium will be redirected back to the externalities that are both social and environmental that are involved in the production of whatever you buy. The consumer facing work, though, is really just one part of it. Another big focus for true price and true cost accounting is policy and research, where you're trying to make lawmakers aware of the current cost of business as usual. There was a Rockefeller Foundation report from a few years ago on the U.S. food system that used true cost accounting. And while American consumers spend about $1.1 trillion on food each, each year, if you look at the healthcare costs of diet related diseases, environmental costs of greenhouse gas emissions, air and water pollution, reduced biodiversity. The true cost of the American food system is roughly triple $1.1 trillion. It's more like $3.2 trillion. Right. There have been similar studies in the UK on their food system. And so using true cost accounting and, and true pricing as a kind of lens that illuminates all of these hidden externalized costs, I think that's a lever to make taxes and subsidies much more rational, so that we're actually rewarding businesses that are operating in sustainable ways and penalizing ones that are simply externalizing costs onto the environment, onto humans, and really onto the public sector, since a lot of taxpayers now and in the future are going to be paying these diet-related and climate-related costs. Tax on the future generations, basically. Is there any
1: sort of direction or is there any uh, pressure to have companies do true cost accounting or at least put it out there? Or are people just doing it on their own groups and activists?
0: Currently, there are companies that use it as a research tool and that use it really to clean up their supply chains and to measure their internal performance year after year. So if you've ever eaten a chocolate bar from Tony's, that's that's a, a Dutch company that makes chocolate and that's very concerned about cleaning up the supply chain for chocolate. There's some notorious examples of child slavery in the supply chain for a lot of major chocolate companies. Tony's is working very hard and using research from true price to know exactly where it's falling short, both in the human and the environmental domains. They want to know exactly what their externalities are year after year, and they want to see that slope trending downwards. So there are companies that are using it. Something a little bit more ambitious would be the kind of supply chain due diligence legislation that's currently being considered in the European Union. You can imagine if that kind of legislation were passed, any company that is now liable for human rights violations throughout its supply chain would very quickly have a strong material incentive to do this kind of research and know exactly what violations are occurring and where throughout the length of its supply chain. So I think there are increasingly more and more signs that companies both voluntarily and also perhaps under legislative pressure will be doing this kind of research.
1: The conversation about true price accounting and true pricing connects to another alternative that you talked about, which is livable wages. Because in some ways, I always think about that low prices we pay for various goods is just a way of redistributing uh, profits from labor to capital holders. And so it's people who are, in the end, it's workers who are paying less that enable us to get these low prices at Walmart or wherever, at McDonald's or other places and basically it increases profitability, which ultimately goes to shareholders and holders of capital. So unfortunately, Henry Ford, of course, realized that and increased wages and benefits for his workers because he saw them as consumers. Somehow a lot of companies don't see that. And these sort of low prices that are so important. And that's how we look at monopoly regulation, right? Like does it increase prices? Does it is- decrease prices, we end up paying for it through lower wages, one way or another. So talk about livable wages and what you've been writing about in in that domain.
0: Absolutely. I agree with what you're saying. And the chapter that I have on living wages really starts with a moral and philosophical question, which is, what do we mean by living? If we say something is a living wage, I think most people they, they have a sort of intuitive sense that someone's living a pretty good life, right? They're, they're probably able to, to go out to dinner, to save a little bit for retirement, to have a rainy day fund in case they get sick to save a little bit for old age. This is a pretty reasonable sense of, of living, but that's actually not what most companies paying living wages are supporting. So If you go back to the history of the term, it starts in the progressive era with a Catholic priest whose name was John Ryan, who wrote a book about living wages. Teddy Roosevelt championed living wages. And in the progressive era, in the early 20th century, what reformers meant by living was actually close to what I described. So Roosevelt says a living wage must be sufficient to secure the elements of a normal standard of living. Including education, recreation, childcare, cushion for periods of sickness, and savings for old age. Now, today, most living wage calculators actually make no provision for savings, for education, or for vacation. So, the most influential one is the MIT living wage calculator, which has gotten marginally more generous and capacious in its vision of what living is but still does not make provision for those elements I mentioned. In America, the federal minimum wage has not budged since 2009. It's $7.25 per hour. And while there are many state and local ordinances with much higher minimum wages, they're actually still quite far away from providing just a reasonable standard of living. So one of the things that that chapter tries to say is that Wages are not part of some amoral domain of supply and demand called the market where ethical concern has no place. In fact, they're a central locus of ethical and political negotiation. They're all about distribution. One economist I I cite is a guy named Robert Pollin, and, and he has this really interesting calculation he's done where he says, look, If American wages had simply tracked both inflation and economic productivity since 1968, the federal minimum wage would be $31.67 an hour. So in other words, if workers participated in the rising productivity that their work has enabled, they would make more than four times the federal minimum wage today, $31 an hour. So that shows you, I think, very clearly that what we're talking about is a question of distribution, of increasing concentration at the top of the economic pyramid. And that is a zero-sum game. That means there is less money and people are, are having much more difficult lives because of how we're choosing to distribute resources. Yeah,
1: and one result of that is we have a huge income inequality in the U.S., but the wealth inequality is 10 times greater than that. So it used to be that your wages, you were able to save, you were able to generate wealth, you were able to buy homes, but that's from a lot of people, that's no longer true. So the result of that is that work is no longer the means of distributing prosperity in terms of wages. Most of the wealth is generated not through wages, but through ownership of assets of various kinds, primarily financial assets. So who who is fighting for, I know, and we work with people in the labor movement who were fighting for, remember Fight for 15 that was $15 an hour, minimum wage.
0: Who's fighting for living wages? Well, just on your point about ownership as opposed to wages, I, I think that's such an important point. And I just want to underscore something that, that came out of the research for the book. You're absolutely right that increasing wages while it's it's incredibly helpful and it's incredibly important it's not the same as actually increasing people's wealth and if wages are falling really far below the the level they would have to be at just to enable people to meet their monthly expenses there no there's no way people are also going to be able to save money for say home ownership or retirement that's why employee ownership as as a concept and a movement is, is so vital. Here's just one of many provocative statistics that I found on employee ownership. If Amazon's employees about five years ago in the year 2018, if they had owned as much stock in Amazon as Sears department store employees did in the 1950s, every worker at Amazon would have owned shares that were worth about $380,000. So, You imagine employee ownership being widespread, and it used to be much more widespread, but you imagine if it became more widespread, you could have people working in warehouses, working blue-collar jobs, who nonetheless had hundreds of thousands of dollars of assets because they would actually own stock in the companies where they worked. So if you imagine at the top 100 companies in America, publicly traded companies, if you imagine Distributing ownership among workers, this is actually a plausible route to recreating a middle class in America in a way that I think just raising wages alone, as much as I support things like the fight for 15, although 15 is now a a rapidly dating and obsolete number, absolutely. As much as those those improvements in wages are important stopgap measures, they're not really touching this fundamental point about ownership of wealth and capital assets. So the people who are fighting for, for living wages, many of them are, are business owners who just believe strongly in supporting their employees. It tends to be people I found who were working pretty closely with their own workers, so they understand some of the distributional trade-offs. They understand if I just take five times more money this year that's actually going to impact people that I see every day at work. They're actually not going to be able to fix their car or take their kid out for dinner. Small businesses, there's a kind of psychological benefit I think to the scale where you actually have to encounter people that your decisions are going to impact. So some of the people I profile in the living ways chapter are, are running small businesses and they really, they understand the struggle of their workers because they they see them every day and they they want them just to be okay. The concept of a business as something that you do only to maximize your own wealth is, I think, a little bit strange. And when you actually talk to a lot of business owners, I think it's something that's often a little bit more popular in in the kind of imagination of economists than it is among among business owners. And there's certainly exceptions. There are lots of big businesses that do operate on that that's model, but the, the people that I write about in the chapter, they, they tend to have that sort of face-to-face reminder of the impact of their decisions about wages.
1: Yeah. So in the book, and you talk a lot about co-ops, cooperatives is a form of ownership that gives workers, they're both workers and owners, and employees stock ownership models. So you have each chapter dedicated to a particular alternative. We're not going to cover all of them in this conversation, but another one you talked about is public budgeting, which is kind of different. That has to do with democratically running governments in particularly local areas and examples of that. I, I wanted to ask you, first, how did you, how did you find these people? Did you have to search? Did they come to you? Did you purposefully search for them? And also, what are you coming away with in terms of people because in your stories, like a lot of New Yorker stories in general, you focus on the larger theme, right? The, something that's interesting in terms of society, economy, but it's also about people. It's about, mm-hmm. it, and it's, a lot of it is personal stories of these people and how they end up being in these roles of running alternatives and leading some of these movements. So how did you find them? Did you purposefully, like, did you line up and said, okay, I want to cover public budgeting, I want to cover co-ops, I want to cover true pricing? Did they, like, appear to you as you were writing? And then about the people themselves?
0: Yeah, so that's a great question. I was living overseas for the last several years. My my wife was overseas for research, so we were both in in Europe, and a lot of my focus was was on interesting experiments happening around Europe. Now, there are definitely chapters that are more focused on America, but being in Europe, it was kind of interesting. I I think that colors some of the focus of the book a little bit. Like The the participatory budgeting chapter I have is set in Portugal, where there's a city outside of Lisbon called Cascais, that spends a very, very high percentage of the municipal budget through direct democracy, where people actually vote on what to do, how should the money be spent each year, and they can fund all kinds of things, including major infrastructure projects. So another European example is is in Spain, where I write about Mondragon, which is the world's largest worker-owned cooperative, it's actually a network of cooperatives, and it spans a broad range of of industries and sectors. But it's an enormous kind of counterexample to the standard corporation, where you have a six-to-one ratio across all the co-ops between the highest and the lowest paid workers. And you also, again, have a very direct democratic governance mechanism where there's one vote per worker and people are voting on very important businesses, often strategic, sorry, people are voting on very important strategic decisions that the businesses will make. So the European focus, there's a chapter on a job guarantee pilot in Austria. There's something on on True Price in the Netherlands. There's a climate budget section on Oslo. So The the principle of selection was basically what's an example of something that's tackling a major issue. It could be economic or it could be something kind of adjacent to the economy, like environmental issues or political issues that are affected by economic things. So as long as I, I could find a compelling case study that was connected to an economic issue, and that sort of met the basic criteria of being a counterexample to the status quo, so being a, an alternative, so that I could say, here's a non-utopian solution to a major issue. It may not be widespread around the world, but it's also not non-existing. It's not just in someone's imagination. That was the basic principle of selection, something real, something addressing a major issue Issue that's either directly related to the economy or adjacent to it. And being in Europe was very useful for a lot of the reporting and research.
1: And and what about people? Like what what did you is there something that's similar? Is there kind of a line arc that connects the people who are driving these alternatives? Because it's hard, right? You're working against the, the grain in some ways. You're working against what's perceived as a way to do things. So there's got to be something up in these people that's driving them to do this.
0: Yeah, that's a great point. I think there are connecting threads that characterize a lot of the people who are pushing on some of these solutions. One thing I found very interesting is that for a lot of the people I spoke with, they're not simply interested in wealth maximizing, profit maximizing. And instead of regarding what they're doing as this kind of self-sacrificing, altruistic, noble thing, a lot of them characterized it as simply a rational thing, right? So it's actually, it's a little unreasonable if you just think about the best way to run your business. It's not particularly reasonable to say, I'm gonna tolerate incredibly high levels of, of churn and burnout among my employees. I'm gonna tolerate all kinds of externalities on the natural world. It gets us right back to Tolstoy's hero again. If if you have a very kind of short-term focus on maximizing profit, like that can work for a little while, but at some point you collapse or your business collapses or the ecosystem collapses. So I thought one of the most interesting things I encountered was people who wanted to reframe the concept of rationality away from the homo economicus model of profit maximizing and into something much more realistic, given what we understand about human psychology. We have all of these moral and political concerns as humans who live in communities. We don't want to live in denuded, destroyed ecosystems. We don't want to live in towns where there's massive sort of levels of tension and, frankly, hatred between. These are not attractive things. It's not really a reasonable way to run a business or to exist in the world to just ignore these. And, and so a lot of the people I, I found really inspiring would, would just try to reframe their motivation so that they kind of resisted being characterized as exceptional and extraordinary. And they're these moral saints and heroes because actually, if they're just morally exceptional, that lets everyone else off the hook right? The rest of us who are average can then just kind of admire them, but not actually change anything. Whereas if what they're doing is actually very normal, very rational, then other business owners and other just citizens have more, there's more of an expectation, like why wouldn't you consider profit sharing? Why wouldn't you pay living wages? Why wouldn't you support a participatory budgeting program and actually fund it at a meaningful level? You
1: bring up an interesting point, and also you being in Europe and starting this work while you were in Europe, you are in the U.S. Now, the concept of what's normalized and what is the norm and the social and cultural norms about it, and what seems normal to one seems completely out of the box to another. In Bondragon, and you write about it, that the ratio of managers to, which is the head of each of the co-ops, to worker is uh, six to one. We know that in the US average is something like 350 to one and probably to people in Mondragon, it seems insane. They used to even going to six to one was controversial because it used to be three. So the idea that somebody, the head of an organization or business can be paid 350 and some of them a lot more to one seems completely abnormal. Like It seems almost out of the range of possibility. On the other hand, for a lot of business executives in the U.S., the idea that you're paid six to one is probably similarly insane. And it's kind of these social norms that are so important that form what is normal and what is normalized. And as you said, I think elevating these stories and showing that it it's a different kind of norm. And by itself, if you encounter them, it makes them more alien. And I think that's why it's so important to be elevating these stories and saying there are people doing this already. Look maybe next door or look here. It's not that alien. There that's already happening.
0: Absolutely. I thought the Mondragon example was fascinating. Spending time there was was very much like going through the looking glass where people there take a look at an American business with these extraordinarily high ratios of CEO to worker pay. And, and it, it does seem just striking and bizarre to them that that anyone would put up with that. Um, and the six to one thing, again, it doesn't necessarily strike them as kind of noble, it's just normal and rational and fair. One little bit of evidence that I, I think is, is worth pointing out on the question of compensation is like, if you do cross-cultural studies Of of people, there was a a study that looked at folks from over 40 countries and they asked two questions. The first question was, What do you think the pay ratio is between highest and lowest workers? And then they asked, What do you think it should be? So they they did this in 40 countries and they compared results. And the the conclusion was it was pretty interesting, where most people said that they thought pay ratios. Like in America, I think it was about 30 to 1. So they thought that it was much smaller than it actually is. They said 30 to 1 is what they, they thought it was, but then it's in reality, it's much closer to about 350 to 1 or even higher, depending on how you measure it. But then the second question, what do you think it should be? That in countries around the world, people answered that question with an even smaller figure. So if you if you say it again in America, I'll guess it's 30 to 1, then you ask people, well, what should it be? Most people would say, oh, maybe 7, 8 to 1, maybe 20 to 1 in some countries. Which, by the way, it used to be in the 60s in the US. That's what it used to be. So it does seem like there are these, these cross-cultural, universal intuitions about fairness that you can pick up in certain studies. One way to think of Mondragon is it's a place where the way people think the world should be, they've actually realized that in practice. They've made a business that, that kind of reflects these universal moral intuitions about fairness. I think that's worth remembering when thinking about who's weird, who's normal. If you want to define normal as like, what do humans around the world think is a good idea? There's actually a, a case that Americans are the ones who are way off in this strange, strange realm of incredibly unequal pay and that places like Mondragon are much more normal.
1: Yeah, I, I like that term universal moral intuitions. That's, that's a great term. So what do you see? And I think we're in the same boat in some ways, like we're seeing all these equitable ways and alternative ways. And, and your book is amazing in documenting some of these alternatives How do you move them from alternatives to, how do you normalize them? How do you move them from alternatives to the mainstream? I feel like a lot of people are working on this and the people you write about, the people we highlight in Equitable Enterprise, and a a lot of people, but it's still like we think of them as alternatives. What would it take for us to move them to the mainstream?
0: That's a great question. Uh, not surprisingly, my my answer points to the the power of of changing people's thinking of telling stories. I th- I think these are are valuable tools and that consciousness raising is important. If we use social science jargon and think about the Overton window, the kind of space of possibilities at a given time, that is just composed of people's understanding of these issues. And so to the extent that books and articles and interviews can normalize like we've been saying can normalize what are currently models that are a little bit more peripheral can show that these are 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 viable that they don't always involve one or two places that they they might actually involve hundreds of thousands of participants like just on the employee ownership model for instance there're over 10 million ESOPs, Employee Stock Ownership Plans, in America, there are over 10 million active participants in ESOPs already. So that's not a trivial number. Yes, it is an alternative in, in, in the sort of conceptual sphere, but that's actually quite a lot of people. In terms of how to make these models much more widespread, beyond the power of raising awareness, I, I guess The sort of the fundamental challenge is is, is getting a lot of education to to function somehow differently. There's a reason that the first chapter of the book is all about economics education. I, I tell this story, which one could, and in fact, people have written entire books just on this history. But there's been a really strong, concerted effort to shape the ideological content of economics education in America And business education. And business education. And there's been huge amounts of plutocratic money poured into very direct efforts to shape how economics is taught. I go into that history in the book, but it's only now starting to be countered by a different model of economics education, one that's much more attuned to these political and moral questions that are really at the heart of economics. So even if you don't want to see education as a tool of indoctrination, and I think there are good reasons to resist that, whether the indoctrination is left or right, I think it's it's important to resist just using education as a tool of indoctrination. I think it's also important to say, though, that it's very hard to present economics as just a neutral scientific field with any kind of plausibility. That itself is already a political stance. And there are many economists who resist that characterization who would say, we're actually not doing something that's similar to physics. We're doing something that really should be called by the name it it used to have, which is political economy. And that name itself signals that there's an inescapable political dimension to economics. So I think it's also vital to call a spade a spade and notice that economics has misunderstood itself as this natural science when in fact it's one of the social sciences and it's much closer to political philosophy than it is to physics just making people aware of these political and normative dimensions i think this gets us right back to tolstoy where you can't any longer appeal to unalterable laws of the universe and just say well i'm just doing this because that's how economies work you're actually, you're making a choice. And so noticing that there is that element of choice, whether it's in wages, whether it's in labor markets, whether it's in profit distribution, whether it's in which externalities to incorporate into your pricing, these are all choices.
1: And and that's a long-term transition because it takes a whole new generation of professors and researchers and departments and disciplines to go through that transition Um, And yeah, I agree with you that education, economics, and business schools, 60% of U.S. undergrads, their major is business education. So that in itself would be very, very powerful. So just to end, and thank you so much for taking the time. And I highly recommend the book, The Alternative. And I think you'll learn a lot and it will inspire you to look at these alternatives and maybe engage in in one of them. What about you? Where are you now having published this book? How do you see your role? You're at the journalism school now at Berkeley. You moved to Berkeley.
0: Where do you see your role in in all of this? Thanks for that. Um, I am teaching at the Graduate School of Journalism at UC Berkeley. Um, I continue to be interested in these questions and in exploring some of the philosophical underpinnings of economics. I'm, I'm interested in how philosophical assumptions often structure economic policies and arguments. So I think for now, my role is is just to continue doing journalism, to continue teaching and researching some of these issues. And I, I won't say anything for the moment about future book projects, but I, I'm also thinking about those and thinking about how to continue unraveling some of the historical and philosophical strands that have created the current status quo. Trying to understand what assumptions go into that status quo, what are its origins?
1: Are you you're sticking with these issues in terms of your own sort of writing and work?
0: Well, broadly, I, I guess I, I I remain really interested in in the philosophical aspects of economics, the po- political, moral, and philosophical questions that are right at the heart of economics. I think I think it's rare to see journalists who write about economics, but also it's rare to see economists kind of engage directly with these questions. You certainly have people who go very hard on a kind of activist, one issue, this is the right answer. But just noticing that there are a range of moral and political questions and that there's nothing inherent to economics that compels one answer those questions, I think that itself is a contribution. And that's what I'm hoping that the book makes. And and I'm definitely interested in exploring that further.
1: Thank you so much. And thank you for writing the book, uh, Nick Romeo. Uh, The book is published by Public Affairs New York, and um, I highly recommend it. And thank you for speaking with me.
0: Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure.
1: Thanks so much for listening. Institute for the Future is the world's oldest continuously running futures research and educational organization. At IFTF, we believe people can harness the power of imagination to awaken a sense of agency in their own futures and drive change in themselves and their organizations. Be sure to subscribe to the Future Now podcast and find out more about IFTF by visiting
0: iftf.org. Until next time.